All right, our text that I'm going to read for us here is Genesis 2.24, and it will remind us of a very important background truth to get us started. God says this in his word. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and, his, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let's pray. Father, teach us today about your design for humanity, your design for marriage and family, and help us to find, well, help us to see the ugliness of what's wrong, but help us to find the beauty in the truths you have for us as well, because there are beautiful things if we can get there today. That's our prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. So today we continue a discussion of a topic that I would say to you is a difficult topic to discuss. It's not difficult theologically. The Bible is very clear to us about this topic. But it's difficult emotionally for many. Do you guys understand that? That there are topics that may not be hard to know, but they may be hard to understand and love and be able to deal with. You guys ever have that in anything? If you're not saying yes to me, you've never tried to eat healthy, right? You all know what you're supposed to eat, right? Some of you do it. Some of us don't. So I'm going to begin this discussion by saying this. My desire in talking about a hard topic is twofold. First, I do want to be clear and I want to be faithful to the Lord but I want to be kind. I want to be understanding. I want us to understand that this, this is not an emotionally easy discussion in our culture, but it's the job of the Christian, would you not agree, to speak the truth in love. Yes? That's what we're going to do, Lord willing. Now, we're going to see in our study today that there are desires and behaviors in the human condition that are sin. And saying that certain desires and certain behaviors are sin before the Lord, that is not us in any way communicating hatred to anybody else. Rather, for us to call sin, sin, is for us to honor the Lord and to seek to love people by pointing them to what honors God. If I love you, and if there's something that you embrace that could destroy you, I have to tell you. I won't be cruel to you. I won't hate you. But I have to be true to the word of Almighty God. And I'm going to strive to do that with us together today, okay? Today we're going to do our best to sweep through the concepts in the Old Testament to see if the things that we've already learned about humanity and marriage remain consistently true all the way through the Bible. And we're going to see particularly how mankind in our rebellion against God has done great harm to our understanding of marriage and sexuality. And we're going to see that as sin increased in the world, new forms of sinning against God with our bodies came right along with it. And we'll see if you can get through the ugly stuff at the beginning, because I'm going to tell you, this message is a little front-loaded with ugly. I've never said that before in my life. While we see the ugly at the beginning, we're going to see that God has also done beautiful things to preserve for us standards that will help us thrive. So what have we seen in this series so far? Can I ask you again to look at your worship guides and you should have the little what we've learned so far section. Do you have that in there again today? I hope you do because it helps me if you do. Because you've got references and I won't give you all the references. What have we learned about God, friends? We have learned that God is good. Do you agree with that? All right, very good. We've learned that God's word is perfect. We already talked about that today. We've learned that God knows you and me and our needs better than we know ourselves, which means it's better to listen to God about what you, what you should be than for you to listen to you about what you should be. Now, God has all authority as creator. We know that from Genesis 1. God created marriage, and God is the only one who has the right to define what marriage is. Genesis 1, 26 to 27, 215, all the, all the stuff we read. 
It's God's thing. It's God's design. God has the right to tell us what it's supposed to be. Then what do we learn about people? All people are created in God's image and have equal value in God's sight. Men and women and children all have equal value in the sight of God. God created us with gender. God created us male and female, Genesis 127, chapter 2, verse 7, and on and on you go, right? Men and women are designed by God to complement one another. We are to, to meet one another's needs and strengthen where each other is weak. Humans are to work multiplying and ruling over the earth. But then we get to the stuff we've learned about marriage, and this is central to what we're going to talk about today, okay? Marriage is the covenant union of one man and one woman. That means I'm saying very intentionally, marriage is intended by God to be monogamous and heterosexual. And you can learn that with many a passage. Marriage is the proper way, the only, you should put the word only in there. I don't know why I didn't put that in there. Marriage is the only proper way for humans to experience sexual union. And God charges the man with the responsibility of leadership in the marriage. And God charges the woman in the marriage to help her husband fulfill his God-given tasks. And generally, marriage should result in children. That's a purpose. Not the only purpose, but a purpose of marriage that we long to see fulfilled. Now, I owe you a quick note on that first line in uh, about marriage, the word covenant. Uh, when I w went through this in Genesis chapter 2, I didn't take the time to establish the word covenant, and I should have. And I'm just going to say to this to you, that it, when the relationship formed when the couple unites, as we saw in Genesis 2.24, it is a covenant relationship. Because the couple unites in a formal way, in a binding way, agreeing to do good for one another and to be faithful to one another as long as they would both live. And the covenant aspect of the relationship is something you see more and more as you look through the rest of the scriptures. But scholars would tell you that if you look at Genesis 2.24, which we read earlier this morning, that language rings the bell of biblical covenant language. It's the deepest of promises. So marriage is a covenant relationship. It's like a promise, but significantly deeper, significantly heavier. But last week we, were, we saw that once the fall of man took place, the world was broken. And instead of people living in accord with God's perfect design, we began to make choices that would go against the Lord and would bring pain and sorrow into our world. I want you to think with me. Don't turn to any of these passages. I want you to think with me. And we're going to track through the book of Genesis. What happened to the world just in the first book of the Bible as it relates to marriage and sexuality. By the way, what would you guess? Would you guys guess that in just one book of the Bible, we can't mess things up that much, right? Okay, is that true? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think we did it? Yeah, yeah, I do too. Okay, so here's what I got. You hang with me, okay? Lamech introduces polygamy in Genesis chapter 4. The odd incident referenced in the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6 shows us some sort of sexual impropriety that seems to have been right there causing the anger of God toward the flood. Noah gets drunk, passes out, and exposes his nakedness in Genesis 9, and that was not for him to show off. Abraham fails to protect his wife, saying, she's my sister, you stand up and protect me, wife, in Genesis 12. Um, he does, does it again in Genesis 20. In Genesis 16, Abraham brings Hagar into his bed, bringing another woman into the marriage. In Sodom, in Genesis 19, we see men desiring sex with other men. In Sodom, we see the threat of sexual violence instead of safety and protection as we're supposed to see in marriage. Lot produces children with his daughters in Genesis 19, a thing forbidden by God. Shechem rapes Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. 
Jacob in Genesis 34. Reuben sleeps with his stepmom and receives the curse of God, Genesis 35 and 49. And Onan and Judah take advantage of the same widow in Genesis 38. And Potiphar's wife makes an adulterous advance on Joseph, then hurts him, sends him to prison under false accusation in Genesis 39. One book. How we doing? Does that surprise you? Not really, except it sounds like a lot came out pretty fast, didn't it? These dark things and many things to follow are what develop in the human race whenever we turn from the original design of God. When you turn from God's design, the kind of ugliness I just read is what happens. God made the world. God showed us what is good. God created people, including gender, including sexuality. And God knows exactly what the boundaries are supposed to be. And God designed marriage. And he makes it clear for us in his word what it's supposed to be. Marriage is the exclusive covenantal union of one man and one woman. It is the only way that sex can be honoring to God, safe, loving, unashamed. And if we go against that, then you or or, or, or me or, or others, whoever it is, whoever goes against it, we're saying that we either know better than God what is good, or we're saying that we don't care what God's standards are. So now we need to answer an important question. Here's a big part of the sermon, okay? We just swept through Genesis, and you saw we messed things up. Now the question is, is what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 about the design of marriage going to consistently be held to be true through the Old Testament. So we're going to look again at those points on the about marriage section of your worship guide, and we're going to go through the unfolding of history a little bit, and we're just going to look to see can we find places that, that affirm those propositions, okay? So the first thing I said to you guys is that marriage is to be an exclusive union, right? Regarding marriage, we learn that marriage is to be an exclusive, I I use the word monogamous, union. Marriage is not supposed to be one man with many wives. Any of the men want to give me an amen with that, by the way? (laughs) It is not to be one woman with many husbands. It is certainly not to be a union of multiple men and multiple women. But if you know humanity and if you understand sin, you know that after the fall, people begin to go against God's design. Genesis chapter 3, we saw the fall of mankind. The sin enters the experience of the world. Genesis chapter 4, the first thing you see in Genesis 4, what's the first sin you see in Genesis chapter 4? After Adam and Eve were out of the garden, what's the next sin we get to introduce? Do you remember? Murder. Cain kills Abel, which is negative. Then, in chapter 4, you begin to see the genealogy of the descendants of Cain. See, Genesis is often put together by these are the generations of, and they tell you the story of a kind of people. And we see the generations of the men who were born into the family of Cain. And every time we see the folks born into the family of Cain, they're bad dudes. And Lamech is one of them. Look at Genesis 4. You can turn to Genesis 4 now because I want you to see a couple verses. Verse 19. I hear pages going. Have you found it? Genesis 4? Okay. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. Genesis 4.19 introduces for us to see a human perversion of God's design for marriage. Marriage was set up by God as an exclusive and monogamous union of one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. And here for the very first time, a man takes a second wife, and that is against the design. And the question is, should a reader of the scripture assume that what happened there is okay? Well, we, we don't see anything in the passage that says he was sinning, right? It didn't say, Lamech did this and God said, don't do that, Lamech. In fact, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, 
Many people we admire participate in this practice of having multiple wives, don't they? But I would encourage you to take note of the kind of man who introduced polygamy into the human experience, and that will give you a hint as to how we should think about this. Now, I'm going to say this is only a hint. The hermeneutical principle here is not strong by itself, but I think it helps. Look at verse 23 and 24. Genesis 4. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. How many of you, when you go through your Bible in a year readings and read across that, think, that's weird? Yeah? Any takers? Yeah. Lamech in his own boastful words, admits to us that he is a vengeful murderer. Lamech is the kind of man who escalates violence. Lamech is the kind of man who kills for pride. Lamech is bad. Scripture wants us to see Lamech as evil. And if that's the first man to break the design of God that marriage be one man and one woman, we can at least conclude that there might be something wrong here. Lamech is not a man whose pattern you want to follow. You would not want to say, man, I am a lot like Cain, would you? And you wouldn't want to say I'm a lot like Lamech either. So here's the question, and this is probably in the minds of a couple of you. Why did God allow so many Old Testament saints to take multiple wives? You know what my answer to that is? I don't know. There's a lot of things. I don't know why God did what he did. I, I, I don't. I do not know why he made mosquitoes. Do you? I mean, you can guess. I'm sure frogs are happy about it. I'm not real sure why I made frogs, though. So, right? I don't know why God created that thing in gymnastics that they do with the ribbons. It's not my thing. Other people think it's great. <laughs> Sorry. I can't tell you the answer to the questions of why God let this happen the way that he did, because I'm not God. But I can tell you this. In all of the instances of multiple wife marriage in the Old Testament that we see, it leads to pain and hardship. When any of the relationships are described for us to get a little insight into the household, not just the general, this guy married these women, but when you really get a chance to see what the household looks like, it is always unshakably negative. Always. You never get a description of the introduction of another wife improving anything in the marriage. You, you don't believe me? Watch it when Abraham brings another woman into the marriage. Watch the jealousy and the bitterness and the ugliness between the four wives of Jacob. Watch Solomon have so many women that they distracted him and led him away from the Lord. It's always ugly. I would say it's because... Marriage is supposed to be exclusive. And I think the Bible, even the introduction of polygamy, shows us that we should know God's design is better than that. With me? Now the next thing we're going to see is marriage is the union of one man and one woman. Right? Back to the list. We saw that marriage is the union of a man and a woman. It is a heterosexual union. The place to turn to see this first violated in the scripture is Genesis chapter 19. You guys know Abraham's nephew Lot, don't you? He went to live in the town of Sodom, and problems arose. And in Genesis 19, verses 4 and 5, we read this. But before they lay down... The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called the lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, if you know your Bible, you know this story. It's troubling. Angels from God have been sit, sent by God to Sodom to test the city 
to see if there are even a handful of righteous men in the town. If there are a handful of righteous men in the town, the town will be spared. But if not, the city is going to be judged. And God says the city is wicked. It must be destroyed if those righteous men are not there. Well, these angels, these messengers from God come to the city and Lot takes them to his house to give them hospitality. And that night, the men of the city come and demand to, quote, know those men. This is not them demanding an introduction. The men of the town are seeking sexual encounters with other men. And Lot recognizes, Lot, who's a pretty messed up dude himself, even Lot recognizes this action of the men of Sodom is wicked. Look at verse 7. Lot says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Now, Lot's going to show you how wicked he is in just a moment too, so we're not going to take a lot of solace in that, but Lot knows this is against God's design. Why is the demand of the men of Sodom wicked? Two reasons. It is a violent demand, and that is wicked. And it's wicked because it's a demand for a sexual encounter that is in rebellion against the design of God. Later in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, the Lord gave to Israel laws that were absolutely clear. God spoke very particularly in Leviticus 18 to things that people would do with their bodies physically that go very much against his holiness. And in two very strongly worded verses in the book of Leviticus, God makes it plain that sexually uniting with someone of the same sex is a violation of his standard. Let me read you the word of God Leviticus 18:22 You shall not lie with a male as with a woman it is an abomination Leviticus 20:13 If a man lies with a male as with a woman both of them have committed an abomination they shall surely be put to death their blood is upon them You remember that we established long ago in sermons that the Lord is holy and God's commandments are good, yes? So even if this command is offensive to modern ears, and it often is offensive to modern ears, you know what it's not? It's not wrong. You and I dare not sit in judgment over the commands of the Lord as if the Lord's commands are beneath us. This command is the word of the Lord. And it shows us this for sure. Marriage is not to be the union of two men. By implication here, we know that marriage is also not to be the union of two women. The New Testament will also make that abundantly clear in Romans chapter 1. Again, this is not us saying that we hold hatred in our hearts for anybody. We do not have hatred for those who are guilty of sinful desires. We do not have hatred in our hearts for those who are guilty of sinful actions. We've been guilty of all sorts of sinful desires and actions. But we must be faithful to the Lord who has made us and has shown us what he wants of us. And if God says something is a big deal and, and, and something we are not to do, we have to take that very seriously. Sex is to be experienced only within the bonds of biblical marriage, and that union must be between one man and one woman. Let's go on. Next on your list, marriage is the only proper place for proper, or the only place for proper sexual union. In that second point about marriage on the list, again, marriage is the only proper way for people to experience sexual union. For certain, the Bible has never ever contradicted that all through the bible all through the old testament you see explicit commands to this end there are words that we learn and those words are there to indicate that sexual activity outside of marriage is against god one of the words is fornication any inappropriate sexual contact any sexual contact between people who aren't married is fornication or called immorality depending on your translation any man who has a similar encounter with a married woman, not his wife, is said to be guilty of the sin of adultery, which we know in the Ten Commandments is forbidden, but it was obviously seen as wrong long before that time. 
We don't even have to, we shouldn't have to establish this point, but only within the bonds of marriage, only within the biblical bonds of marriage is sex appropriate, safe, beautiful, the things God intended. Another thing we learned is that marriage includes an order in the household. In the next two claims on the list there, we make two claims. We say that God designed the marital relationship with an order that, although the man and the woman are equal, they're equal in worth, they are designed differently and they are assigned different roles, different tasks. The man's job is to lead and to protect in the marriage and the woman who's designed as the helper for the man, she is supposed to support the man in his calling. Again, last week, in original sin, we saw that there was a failure in that pattern. The man refused to protect his wife from the serpent. And he followed her lead and he ate the forbidden fruit. But when the Lord calls the people to account, who does God go to? Who does God blame? The bulk of the guilt falls on the man. Yeah, the woman was responsible for her behavior, But the choice of the man is what brought the curse of death into the world and stained all of humanity with guilt. In Abraham's life, Abraham sinned because he didn't lead like a husband should. Turn to Genesis 12. We're almost done with the ugly stuff. Turn to Genesis 12, verse 10. You guys still with me, by the way? All right. Genesis 12.10 says, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Aw, isn't that sweet? How many think that sounds sweet? You No takers at all, right? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. Not so sweet, right? Abram, later named Abraham, runs to Egypt to escape a famine. Before he goes into the land, what's he do? I think we can agree Abram failed right there. Wouldn't you agree that that was a failure on the part of the husband? Does anybody think this was a good thing on the part of the husband? I'd like to hear your reasons. What's this failure? He abuses his wife instead of protecting her, right? Abraham refuses to take responsibility for the well-being of the family. Instead, he pushes his wife forward to put herself at risk for his sake, for his safety. And that passage shows us that when marriage is perverted, a man will not stick to his responsibility to lead and to protect. Instead, sinful men will abuse their strength and they will allow women to be hurt. Now, some people would argue from this passage that this shows why the idea of male headship in the home is bad. But I actually think to say that is more to prove my point than anything. I disagree that this shows that male headship is bad. First, biblically, now play logic with me here a little bit, okay? You guys like to be thinkers. Biblically, if the man is not supposed to be the head of the house, Abraham didn't sin. Because if he and Sarah are supposed to be absolutely equal in their authority with no differences whatsoever, all Abraham's guilty of doing is making a bad suggestion. There is no abuse if they're dead equal. She, as a strong and powerful woman, actually sinned by threatening the exclusivity of their marital union. But you see, the thing is, anybody with sense who reads this passage sees Abraham as being guilty of sin because the coward failed to guard his wife. And the only way you can say that Abraham failed is if you see that by God's design, Abraham has the responsibility to lead in such a way as to protect and not to push her forward while he cowers behind. Abraham failed and you know it. Because you know that God designed the marriage for the husband to protect. 
One more, marriage includes children, and that marriage is generally supposed to result in children is the final point on the, on the list, and we don't need to do much about it here. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to see that there is never a single marriage that does not want offspring. That's just, that's just unheard of in the Bible, to be married and not wish for children. Not every marriage gets children, but the desire to have children is a normative part of human existence. And when in the Bible it isn't possible for the couple, it is always a source of deep sadness. Just look at Sarah, look at Rachel in the book of Genesis. You see it? Okay. Again, we're, we're, I feel like we're not so sermony here as we are kind of Bible study in this moment because that's how this unfortunately has to be in some ways. But let me ask you, can you see that all the points that we already saw about marriage in Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall are pretty clearly upheld in marriage after the fall? It's pretty much there, isn't it? It's in the commands that God gives. You see it, when you, know that, when you know somebody has obviously messed things up, you've got a pretty good idea what the right side's supposed to be. And the sad truth of the human experience is that as we watch the Bible unfold, we watch people turn against God's standards time and time and time again. Now I want to add two pieces to our points. This shouldn't take long. Marriage is to be lifelong so let's add a phrase to the first statement about marriage in the about marriage section. Marriage is the lifelong covenant union of one man and one woman. Well, how do we know that? In Genesis chapter 2, you see the idea of a man uniting with his wife and they create a new family. Later in the Old Testament, you see that when a marriage is broken with the spouses still alive, Sin has to have been involved. In the book of Leviticus is the first time you ever see the word divorce show up in the Bible. Deuteronomy 24 is the first time you see law regulating how divorce should be handled in any way whatsoever. Symbolically, throughout the books of the prophets, God uses language of divorce to speak of his severing of a relationship with sinful Israel when the nation ran after idols. But at the end of the Old Testament, flip to Malachi chapter 2, Malachi chapter 2, some of you will read it as Malachi, you may if you wish. In Malachi chapter 2, God pronounces judgment on, a, on men for participating in illegitimate breaking of marriages. And I want you just to hear it, Malachi 2, 16. Now, I want to do a quick, quick straw poll, quick survey. How many of you, you have to say me because I can't hear, I can't see your hands. How many of you are reading ESV? Okay. How many of you are New American Standard? Couple? Any King James? A few of you, right? Okay. God bless your hearts. Okay. So, as thou readest this verse, I'm going to read NASB. 2.16 begins. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. Now, there's also, again, it even goes in versions of the ESV, how clearly this is going to come out. But in my version of the ESV, in 2.16, it says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. So depending on your translation, and here's why I want you back with me. Don't spend a lot of time trying to work out Hebrew right now. Depending on your translation, and 2.16 is difficult to translate. Here's what we see. Either A, God says he hates divorce, or B, that the person who causes a divorce is a hateful person. Which one of those is true? The answer is yes. I think they're both true. God hates divorce because of the evil hatefulness that has to take place to cause it. What we should conclude 
is that divorce, the breaking of a marriage covenant with the spouses still alive, it can not occur without at least one of the parties in the marriage being guilty of a grievous, serious sin. Applying logic here, friends, if a marriage cannot be severed while the spouses are both alive without somebody committing sin, then we must logically conclude that the Lord wants marriages to last until death parts the couple. We can see in the New Testament especially, God does allow for divorce in response to grievous sin. Not every divorcee is guilty of violating the standard of God's, but marriage is something we should know by God intended to be a lifelong covenant union of one man and one woman. And whenever that is not fulfilled, it is a sad reminder of the fallen state of the world in which we live. I'm going to add one more item, and we'll be done with the Old Testament, although we could do a whole, whole lot more. But I don't know how many more of these you would sit through. Marriage for believers is only to be with other believers. You guys need to hear that, and so I just want to take a moment to say it. If you're a Christian, you should only willingly marry a Christian. Throughout the Old Testament, God forbade the Israelites from marrying people from the surrounding nations. You guys know about that, right? And that command had nothing to do with skin color or ethnicity. It had everything to do with commitment to the Lord. God told the Israelites that they must not form marriages with people who worshiped other gods. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4, he says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Later in the Bible, God will judge King Solomon for his intermarriage with women from other nations who led his heart away from the Lord. You can see that in 1 Kings 11. And I would tell you, now, you you want me to take a risk here, talk about something, get us all in trouble? Some of you people in the back are going, no, please don't. I know you. There is a very commonly held view of Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God and the daughters of men, that weird thing right before the flood. One of the two common interpretations of that passage is that it involves men who should have been following the line of the promise, men who should have been following the Lord, going after women who did not follow the ways of the Lord. That's one interpretation. You can find that in Calvin, by the way. There's another one out there, and it's kind of weird, but... Again, and and good people hold to both, so I don't want to fight about that discussion right there, but we could indeed be seeing that as early as the flood that we see that there's a major problem when the people of God say, I don't care whether this person I'm after is is a follower of God. I just want the person. Now, does that mean that if you're married to a non-believer, you should leave them? No, 1 Corinthians 7 is very clear about that. You can honor the Lord in that situation, but it's not ever easy because it's not how we're supposed to live. Now, could we uncover a great deal more if we looked at every other regulation in the Old Testament about human gender and sexuality? Oh my goodness, yes. But I think we've done enough to lay some things out in front of you. What we discovered about God's design for marriage in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is still God's standard for marriage after the fall. And when we follow the ways of God, it's better. And when we battle against God's ways, we walk further and further into brokenness. But don't forget this, friends. And again, I just want to check. You're still with me, right? Okay. Has this been ugly enough for you? Is this ugly? There's hope. Are you glad to know there's hope? In Genesis 3, when God cursed the serpent, he promised there was somebody coming into the world who would be born of woman, who would crush the devil, and the one to come, you know what his name is? It's Jesus. And in Jesus Christ, God the Son, Jesus gave his life to pay the price for our sins, for our failures, for our rebellion against God all over the place. Even if you battle against sinful desires, and I bet you do, 
Even if you have failed in your past in big ways, and I bet you have, there is room at the cross of Jesus Christ to provide you forgiveness and new life with God. And that's good news. I want you to hear me really clearly. Every one of us have failed. Some of us have sinned against God in what we think of as small ways and some in bigger ways. And there is a difference, by the way. Don't be foolish enough to say that all sins are absolutely equal. God's law does not show you that all sins are absolutely equal. What all sins are is every single one of them, whether a little sin or a big sin, is enough to be damning to the soul of the one who commits it. That's what we need to know. And every one of us have failed. Every one of us has sinned against the holy God who made us. And your sin might be on the list that we've covered today. In fact, I would be very surprised if you haven't sinned in one way or another on that list unless you're very, very young. But if your sin is not on that list of the things we covered today, your sin is somewhere else and it's a big deal and you need God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And God says to you that it is to you to repent and believe to be saved. So I urge you, come to Jesus and find forgiveness and find life. And if you have life in Christ, which I believe most of you in this room do have life in Christ, I want you to remember that you are a forgiven sinner. And let that forgiveness call you to desire to obey God. But let that forgiveness also make you have a great deal of sympathy and kindness and compassion for those who are still struggling, even for those who are battling against God right now. Your heart should break for them. You shouldn't look at yourself and think, oh, how good am I and how blessed I am that I'm not like that guy over there. Now, how about some sweet stuff before we get done? Even though we see humanity rebelling against God time and time and time and time and time and time again in the Bible in the Old Testament, God shows us in the Old Testament some beautiful examples of people doing things right. And it's probably good to remember those two, wouldn't you agree? A couple months ago, with me sitting on my couch and broadcasting live to Facebook, we went through the book of Ruth. Y'all remember that? In that book, we saw a beautiful story unfold. In fact, my mom tells me I should just go back and preach more Ruth because she really liked that. So in that book, a beautiful story unfolded. Ruth, a woman who was born a Moabite, suffered the loss of her husband. And she chose to follow her mother-in-law back to Israel. And she wanted to follow Naomi's God, the God of Israel, as her own. She converted at some point. When the nobleman Boaz saw the godly character of Ruth, He offered her protection and provision, and Ruth was grateful, but she expressed a desire that Boaz not only protect her in general, but she wanted Boaz to play the role of the Redeemer, marrying her and bringing her into the family. And Boaz took action that very day. And he and Ruth were married, and the family line was preserved, and it was beautiful. In the book of Proverbs, They're beautiful things written about marriage. They're wise sayings. They do warn against the the foolishness of sex outside of marriage. I mean, oh, Proverbs speaks very clearly of how dangerous it is. But Proverbs also tells husbands, find satisfaction in your wife. And as the book draws to a close, Proverbs extols the virtues of a woman of noble character. It's beautiful and it's good. She's no weakling. And I don't think that we could think well of marriage in the Old Testament without me telling you to turn to the book of the Song of Solomon. Let me just ask you, turn to Song of Songs, chapter 1. How many of you, in any point in your Christian history, during a sermon, have been asked to look at the Song of Solomon? (laughs) How many of you are going, I'm not sure that it's ever happened? Maybe a couple of you. I hope you have. Song of Songs, Song of Solomon is an eight-chapter poetic book that shows us a couple, and it follows them from courtship through marriage to growing old together. And like all the Old Testament, it upholds the very same design of God that we have seen all through the Bible. So take a look at Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. Are you looking? The wife Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. 
First of all, that's a great memory verse for the household. Just take that home, would you? And as we read this book, we see that the woman, she's not actually impressed with her own physical appearance. She hasn't been able to keep her skin fair the way that she wishes she could have. But the man finds her beautiful. And as they get to know one another in this book, in this poem, in this song, there are multiple places where they warn not to allow the relationship to be sexual before the commitment of marriage. And in chapter 1, verse 7, look at 1, 7, the last half of that verse. She says, For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Now, right now, you're going, I don't get it. You know what she's saying? The woman right there has said to the man, I want to go with you. But she says, I won't be like the veiled woman with the flocks. You know what she's saying? I will not be like a prostitute. I, remember Genesis 38? How did Tamar present herself as a prostitute? She veiled herself and sat by the road to catch the men on the way to sheep shearing. The woman in Song of Songs says, I am very interested in you, but there are places I will not go with you. Then look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. She says, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. She wasn't impressed with her complexion. Now she feels beautiful. And he says, you are like a lily among thorns. One thing that says for sure, as I heard Tommy Nelson once say, is that means all other women are hands off. Right? How many of you grab thorns on purpose? Anybody? No. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Desire is not simply to be fulfilled whenever you want, however you want. Marriage is the place for this. So chapters 1 through 3 of the Song of Solomon show us the couple, they, they, get to, they meet each other, they grow an attraction to one another, there is desire, genuine physical desire there, but there are warnings all through it saying, don't go too far, don't do this outside of a covenant commitment. Then chapter 3 at the end shows you a picture of the marriage of the couple. There's a wedding ceremony, it's really beautiful and poetic and weird, but it's beautiful. Then chapter 4 gives you the beautiful picture of the wedding night of the couple, and I will tell you that if you understand that language, it is racy. Then from chapters 5 through chapter 7, you see the couple live a married life. There is love between the couple. There is still desire between the couple. There is conflict between the couple. They fight in this book. There is reconciliation between the couple. That chapter is also very racy. And then chapter 8, turn to chapter 8, rolls around. The couple, we watch them walk off into the sunset together. And I want you to listen to the commitment that the couple has for each other over the years. Verse 5 of chapter 8. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Can you picture that, by the way, this couple walking off with the wife just leaning on the husband? She says, under the apple tree, I awakened you there. Your mother was in labor with you there. She who bore you was in labor. Then she says this, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. How do you think that woman feels about her husband as they walk into the sunset together? You see the commitment? The one man, one woman for life commitment right there? And when the book closes... 
What you'll see is repeated affirmation of the couple's love for one another, their desire for one another. And even as the book closes, this is a really great spot where the woman turns and thanks her brothers who used to drive her nuts. She used to be mad at her brothers in chapter one. She turns and thanks them in chapter eight for protecting her from making dangerous decisions with her body in her youth. How about that? Now, just a quick poll. How many of you would now would like to do a Bible study through Song of Solomon? Anybody in for that? How many of you think this is the scariest thing you've ever said from the pulpit, Pastor, and please don't say it again? Maybe not from the pulpit. We'll, we'll find a way. If someone's interested, we'll, we'll do, this is a beautiful, beautiful book. Now, did Solomon follow God's design for marriage as a man? No, he wasn't very good at it. But when the Lord inspired Solomon to write the Song of Songs, the Lord helped Solomon to remind you and me that marriage is a lifelong covenant commitment between one man and one woman. Faithful, biblical marriage, Solomon shows us. That's the place where sexual desire is right, and it's safe, and it's unashamed, and it's beautiful, and it's good. Marriage is God's idea, God's property, and marriage is good. You know, this week in my reading for the D group, I was reminded of Psalm 1830, which says to us what? This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Friends, may we be a people who believe that strongly. Do you, will you believe God's way is perfect? God's word is true because it's true when it speaks of how God designed you. It's true when it speaks of God's standard for sex and marriage. May we take refuge in our God, in God's ways, and in God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ. And if you need that grace, I want you to know the grace of God is available to all who will come. Turning from sin, trusting in the Savior. Let's bow together, friends, and let's pray. Father, I would plead with you, teach us well to see marriage, humanity, sexuality, all the rest. Help us to see them with your word central. God, I know this is hard. I know it's possible that someone will hear this, that this hurts deeply. And I don't want to hurt anybody deeply. But I pray that if the text wounds, that the grace of Christ can bring healing, repentance, and life. God, we need your forgiveness your mercy, your guidance. Help us, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.